I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Paul Semendinger about his new book, Roy White, From Compton to the Bronx. Dr. Paul Semendinger is a member of the Internet Baseball Writers Association of America and is the editor-in-chief of the successful Yankees blog, Start Spreading the News. Paul is also my first two-time guest. Um, I had him on the show a while back to discuss his last book, The Least Among Them, which I also highly recommend. Uh, Paul, welcome back to the show. Paul, I'm, I'm honored to be on the show and I'm especially honored to be your first two-time guest. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm honored to have you. Uh, so tell us, how did this project with Roy White come about? You know, it it was a long story, but I'm going to make the story as short as I can. I'm on a podcast, uh, actually a couple, on the Northeast Streaming Sports Network. And the person who runs that network, John McGrath, Mac, was able to secure an interview with Roy White. We were going to do it live. And everything was all set up. I was all excited. I'd never spoken to Roy White before. And he had to cancel. But that's life. So he rescheduled, but he rescheduled for a night when I had a prior obligation. I was an elementary school principal, uh, administrator for uh, 24, 26 years. I just recently retired. But uh, at the time, I had a school event, so I couldn't do it. So I always believe in reaching for the stars and, and just trying to live your dreams. So I said to Mac, when you talk to Roy White, please tell him that I would love to write his autobiography. And I'm not looking for him to be one of these tell-all books and to tell all the secrets. Nothing that he, nothing would would appear in the book that he doesn't want to be there. We don't have to tell any secrets about Reggie or Billy Martin or Mickey Mantle or any of those guys. And lo and behold, the next day I get a text from Mac and it has Roy White's phone number. And then we just texted a few times over a period of about a month. And then one day Roy White actually called me on the phone. And as I was telling you before, like if that was the end of everything, I would have been like, thrilled to death. Like Roy White called me on the telephone. How about that? Like I talked to Roy White, but you know, I gave him my pitch. I told him I want it to be your book. You'll have the absolute last word on every last word in the book. And if you want every comma, every exclamation point or anything else, but it's going to be your story. It's not going to be my story. And I'm not going to print anything that you don't want there. And he said, let me think about it. And within 48 hours or so, he texted me back and said, I'm in. And the next thing you knew, uh, we both live in Bergen County, New Jersey. Um, We were meeting through Google for a couple of our first meets, and he said, let's meet in person. And so we then started meeting in person, 
probably about February of 2022. And we did that once or twice a month, basically into and through the summer. And by then the book was basically written. Then we just got together a few more times to polish things and, you know, to pick the photographs that would appear in the middle. And I guess I should say the rest is history. (laughs) So Roy grew up, as you document in the book, Roy grew up in Compton. He didn't have a whole lot of money. Um, He grew up the child of a a mixed race marriage, which was, I, I think, extraordinarily rare at that time. Um, and his parents ended up being divorced. And I always find it interesting, you know, th- those are some significant obstacles to overcome the, and some people do, and some people don't, right. Some people kind of get weighed down by the, the circumstances of their life. Why is, why was Roy one of the people who succeeded? Why did Roy come out of that, you know, somewhat difficult upbringing and become so successful? There were a number of players who grew up with Roy White in his neighborhood and and in his life who um, were also successful. So uh, Reggie Smith, who he actually played against in the World Series for one. But um, so sometimes it, it has to do with the choices you make and the people you associate with. A lot of it has to do, of course, with your inner character. And Roy White is, you know, I think this is the reason nobody wrote a book about Roy White with Roy White beforehand, because it's my understanding that a lot of the big time sports writers wanted a tell all book. And that's not who Roy White is. Roy White is a person of dignity and class and inner strength and inner resolve. And I think all of those types of behaviors and and attributes, the people we associate with, the way we think about ourselves, the idea that I can achieve, that I can overcome, that I need to be a good person. I think all of those things help to lead people. It's not always 100% successful, of course, but it helps people stay on and get to the path to success. He also made the decision, you know, he talks in the book about, you know, some of the people he hung out with early on weren't exactly the best characters. And he makes the decision that that's not the type of life he wants to live. And he then, you know, focuses on school, gets good grades. And it's because of that, that, that he was able to stay on the right path and, and not follow some of those other people who were influences in his life early on who went the wrong way. So Roy obviously was signed by the Yankees and uh, this is a great story. He, he didn't, the Yankees didn't know they had signed him. (laughs) Can you talk about that a little bit? (laughs) It's it's the best story. Um, There was a, a, a scout, Tuffy Hanshin, who shows up at Roy White's house. Now in the book, Roy White goes through and talks about some of the players he grew up with who were getting big time. This is in the early 60s, big time signing bonuses. This is pre-draft. Agents or actually scouts would come watch games and then they would offer these nice contracts to a lot of these kids, you know, $10,000, $30,000, $50,000. And Roy White, they believed, was going to college. So nobody came over and offered him a contract. And he was just as good as all these other kids he was playing with. He was playing on par with all of them. And he was surprised he didn't get a contract. And after they basically had all gone off to their to begin their professional careers, Tuffy Hanshin shows up at Roy White's house and he says, I've been watching you, which Roy White found to be funny because he never even re- remembers seeing the guy. And he goes, I'd like to give you a contract. And I believe it was for about $5,000. 
much lower than what his uh, friends and associates were getting, but it was with the Yankees. And this guy, Tuffy Hanchin, supposedly never got Yankee approval, never told the Yankees he was going to do this. He signed six players. The only one who made it was Roy White, uh, sent their contracts to the Yankees and um, never signed anybody again and basically disappears off the face of the earth. So it's one of those great mysteries. Where did he come from? Why did he offer him a contract? Uh, Lowballed him. And Roy signed so late that he was actually a professional baseball player, but it was too late to really go join the teams. And so he played another season of like American Legion ball in, in and around Los Angeles until the next winter was over and February comes and he keeps waiting and waiting for his contract, wondering like, is this really going to happen? And eventually the contract came with, along with the plane ticket to go to Fort Lauderdale. And he arrives in Fort Lauderdale and of course to his shock and dismay he can't stay in the same hotel as his teammates what 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 was that like for him it and here's where roy white's class and dignity and even humor shine through roy white um never experienced segregation growing up in los angeles um He never knew what it was like to experience this racial hostility. It wasn't part of his life. It wasn't it wasn't on the radar. They heard about it, I'm sure, but but they never lived it or experienced it. But he gets to Florida and it was all segregated. And actually, the first story is is kind of a humorous one. He stays with the Yankees in their hotel. I forget the name of the hotel off the top of my head, but he stays with the Yankees. And each day they'd go down to breakfast, they'd get on a bus, the bus would take them to the field. And at lunchtime, even the team itself was somewhat segregated. The uh, African-American players would sort of sit in one area and Roy White would have be having uh, lunch with these guys. And they kept saying like, how do you show up at the park every day? We don't see you where we're staying. Because they were in a different place. And Roy White said, I'm staying at, I forget the hotel, but the Biltmore or the Hilton, whatever it was. And they go, you can't stay there. (laughs) It's segregated. You're a black guy. Um, But the Yankees, I guess, or the hotel management or whatever, didn't quite realize that at the time. But after that, throughout the rest of his minor league career, he has to live in segregated areas. He doesn't get to stay with the team. He doesn't get to eat with the team if they're on a bus. Um, He couldn't go to certain restaurants. He couldn't be served in certain places. Sometimes they had to bring him food. And and it was very tough. And you'd expect, you know, I think I think it would be a natural human reaction to be angry and and bitter and hostile to all of that. And whenever I've talked to Roy White about any of that. Of course, he's not happy about it. It, it was wrong and it was terrible. But instead of experiencing and, and expressing anger, he says, you know, the guys who had it before me had it tougher. And that's just that just speaks to who he is as a person. And instead of holding on to that anger, which is would be the natural and, and expected reaction, he, he looks and finds the good and says, you know what? Like I benefited because the players who came before me had it even worse. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so Roy, Roy first gets called up, I believe, in 65. Mm-hmm. Was that right, in 1965? What was the state of the Yankees like during his first you know, few years in the league? So when he signed with the Yankees, this was 1962, I believe, when he inks his name to the contract. 
without going through the history of the Yankees, the Yankees won the World Series in 49, 50, 51, 52, and 53. They won five in a row. And then in 55, they win the most games ever in that period and come in second place because the Indians were just a little better. Then they're in the World Series and they win it. In, uh, that was 54. Then they lose in 55. They win in 56. Um, they're there in 57. They're there in 58 against the Braves, winning one and losing one. They're not there in 59. Then they're back in 60 and 61 and 62. And he signs with this team that's always in the World Series. And he thought, well, maybe I'm getting less money now, but I'm going to be a Yankee and I'm going to be in the World Series always. But 1964, the year before he gets called up, was the last year the Yankees would be in the World Series for 12 years. And the team he eventually starts to play for you know, in 65, the Yankees are a second division club. In 66, that's when the Yankees finished in last place for the first time in decades since before Babe Ruth. And so he becomes a player on this Yankee team that's crumbling and has crumbled. And a lot of the big stars, a lot of the great Yankees are gone or leaving. Yeah. I, I mean, there's nothing more telling in the book than about the state of the Yankees at that time than I think it was 1970 when they had a champagne celebration because they came in second place. I read that. I just, I could not believe that. <laughs> it's a great story. And he, he said that the newspaper media was, was absolutely upset to no end about that. Like the mighty Yankees celebrating second place. What has become of them? And of course the year before the Mets had won the world series. So. Right. Right. I, it's it's a, it's a good thing. Steinbrenner wasn't there yet. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so it, it, it took, as it, as is typically the case with, with major league players, it took Roy a couple of years to kind of find his groove in, in the major leagues. Um, I mean, I think part of it sounds like part of the issue was he, he didn't really have a position that hadn't really settled on where he was going to play. Um, but you know, after a couple of years, he, he settled down and became the regular left fielder. And, um, you know, quickly, you know, a couple of years later was an all-star. Um, how would you describe Roy as a player? But for people that didn't see him play, what was Roy's game like? All right. So Roy White is a player who, if he played today, would be considered a top-notch player because he did everything well. He fielded well. He had a lot of range. He didn't make errors. And in fact, in 1971, he became the first Yankee ever. And we're talking DiMaggio, Mantle, Earl Coombs, you name them. Roger Maris, Hank Bauer. The first Yankee ever to go a whole season without making an error. I think it was 73, but it might have been 71. He also led the league in sacrifice flies. He set the American League record that was equaled by Bobby Bonilla, but he set the record for the most sacrifice flies ever in a season. He was a guy who could hit behind the runners. You could bat him second in 76. He and Mickey Rivers, who was the leadoff hitter, had special signs like Mickey would go and Roy White would make sure that he hit behind him. The Yankees were a fast running team. That's when the year they get back to the playoffs for the first time since 64. Um, he walked a lot. He could steal bases. He scored runs. And he had surprising power. In fact, Roy White, at the end of Mickey Mantle's career, Roy White batted fourth behind Mickey Mantle to protect him in the lineup. He was the best Yankee hitter to protect the great Mickey Mantle at the end of Mantle's career. So, you know, they didn't have statistics like war. If you look at this, a statistic like war, Roy White turns out very well. Bill James, 
this had to be 10 or 15 years ago, wrote an essay in one of his uh, giant baseball books saying that Roy White was better than Jim Rice. And Bill James backs that up one up one side and down the other, saying like Jim Rice was not a a, a multi-dimensional ball player like Roy White was, except that nobody understood at the time the value of walking, hitting behind a runner, hitting sacrifice flies, playing good defense, and playing every day. There were a couple of seasons Roy White played basically every inning of every game. He played all 162 games, both ends of double headers. He was reliable. And without getting into the controversy, I mean, we might want to talk about it later, in the chaos of those late 70s Yankees teams when you know they were the Bronx Zoo and all sorts of crazy things were happening, it was players like Roy White who were the constant, steady hands who helped guide the team and didn't let all those distractions get in the way of winning. So 1973, 50 years ago, uh, George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees. How did things change at with George at the helm for Roy and the team? Before Steinbrenner had the Yankees, they were owned by CBS, and it just seemed as though there wasn't that same caring about winning. Steinbrenner came in and said, we're going to start winning. And he immediately started acquiring new players. He immediately set that as the standard. And the Yankees began began winning very quickly underneath George Steinbrenner. Uh, and Roy White, again, never really has anything negative to say about George Steinbrenner. I'm, I know it's like, that's what everybody wants to have happen is have people say bad things about Steinbrenner. Um, but he said it was George. He has to be the guy who gets the credit for turning this franchise back around and making it such a winning and dominant culture. He was the one who did it. So, you know, there's all sorts of stories. This isn't in Roy White's book, but, you know, Steinbrenner with the haircuts and um, there's that. This is the story that's not in the book. He has a great story with Lou Pinella, supposedly, who Lou Pinella's got long hair and Steinbrenner says, you know, you got to cut that hair. And Pinella goes, well, Jesus had long hair. And uh, Steinbrenner said to Pinella, there's a lake out there past center field. If you can walk on the water, then you can have long hair. <laughs> and then Pinella got a haircut, you know? So, so there's fun right. stories like that. And there's also stories of the chaos that, you know, took place when Steinbrenner ruled the team, but he brought a winning culture back to the Bronx. And Roy White truly believes, I believe that the Yankees wouldn't have been as successful if George Steinbrenner hadn't bought the team and probably many other great you know, millionaires who could have bought the team wouldn't have brought the Yankees back as quickly or as well as Steinbrenner did. And somebody else that George brought back to the Bronx a few years later was Billy Martin. Uh, what was what was Roy's impression of Billy? How did Roy feel about playing for Billy? I think Roy appreciated playing for Billy. Billy was a manager unlike any other manager at the time, and maybe ever, as far as being a field general, as far as being a, a, a strategist, someone who understands the game and is always not just an inning, probably five innings ahead of, of his um, opponent in the other dugout. Roy White tells the story of, of a time he was on second base. There might have been runners on first and second, and Lou Pinella, I think, again, was, was batting. And the bunt sign was on. And the pitch was either a ball or he fouled it off or whatever. I forget what it was. And then Roy White 
goes back to the bag. Lou Pinella then gets a hit and Roy White scores. And, you know, he's getting high fives and Billy Martin goes over to him and he goes, you missed the hit and run sign. And Roy White goes, I'm thinking to himself, like in my whole life, I've never heard of a hit and run on, with runners on first and second in that situation. I got to pay attention to this guy. So Billy Martin did things that were different in 76, of course. As I mentioned earlier, they were running like uh, like wildfire with Mickey Rivers and Roy White at the top of the order, doing all sorts of crazy things, stealing bases, taking the extra base, playing good, hard-nosed baseball. And um, I think Roy White really appreciated that. On the other hand, I don't think he appreciated the fact that when Billy Martin was the manager, things weren't always, um, you know, smooth and didn't always work in a manner that the players appreciated where Billy Martin might tell you, you're going to play tomorrow or you're my starting left fielder. And the next thing you know, you're on the bench. That did happen in the 77 world series. Uh, Roy White was told you're going to play. And that was an important time. The Yankees have finally gotten back to the world series now for the second year in a row, but now they're playing in against the Dodgers against his old teammate. Reggie Smith in his old city, Los Angeles. And Roy White basically didn't play much that World Series. And he had been told he was going to play a lot more. So there was things like that that did happen that obviously I don't think he appreciated. Yeah, I want to ask you about the 77 series because, you know, as you said, it, it was the Yankees' return to glory. Roy had been there for over a decade at that point, had had been there through the lean years. And here finally, you know, a it, towards the end of his career, he's he finds himself on a on a World Series winning team. But as you mentioned, he wasn't playing very much, and so it had to be kind of bittersweet. How did what was that experience like for him? I, I think you had. I think you said it perfectly. It was bittersweet, and and it was great that they won. But I think there was some disappointment and anger and frustration that he didn't get a chance to be as much of a part of it as he could have been. The next year in 78, Bob Lemon is the manager because Billy got fired halfway through the season. And then the Yankees have that remarkable comeback and, and catch the Red Sox. And Roy White was so good in that World Series that heading into the final game, the sports writers were telling him that he was going to be the MVP of the World Series. And it turned out being Bucky Dent. But, um, you know, he again, was able to overcome and find a way to succeed when given the chance. After that 77 series, he he decided to skip the parade, the championship parade, out of, I guess, anger, frustration over, you know, not playing. Um, and I think being misled by Billy as well. Uh, do, does he have any regrets about not, not going to the parade? I think he does. And uh, he also didn't go to the 78 World Series parade. And, you know, I think there's a lesson in there for all of us is is we make decisions in life. And sometimes when we make decisions, when we're caught up in the emotion of a moment, we sometimes miss the bigger picture. And those were the only chances in Roy White's life when he could have had an opportunity to go down the Canyon of Heroes and, and partake in those great moments. And he had made the decision at the time that he didn't want to be part of it in 77 because he didn't feel as much a part of the team and felt he had been not treated 100% honestly. And then in 78, he said, well, I didn't do it last year. I don't want to be a hypocrite and do it this year. 
Um, but I, I think he regrets that, that he, that he wasn't part of those things as I think any of us would. So uh, in life we have regrets and, and, you know, hopefully you learn from them. And, and I think he feels like if he had to do it all over again, he would have been there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. As you mentioned before earlier that, you know, of course, it was known as the Bronx Zoo. And uh, there's that great uh, Greg Nettles quote about how he wanted to join the circus or be a ball player, and he ended up doing both. Um, was from from Roy's perspective, you know, living through that, was it as crazy as it was portrayed in the media? I think his perspective is absolutely not. Now, he also tells the story that he didn't involve himself in a lot of that. In 1979, I asked Roy about this directly, uh, as I did everything, but, but in 1979... Goose Gossage and Cliff Johnson got into a fight. Possibly they were scuffling. I don't know if it started off as a joke, but, but the end of this little scuffle in the shower, in the locker room in 1979 was Goose Gossage's finger got broken and he was out for a couple of months. And I asked Roy White about that while we're doing the work. I said like, you know, who was in the wrong? Was it just like they were goofing around? Were they really angry? What was all that about? And he goes, I gotta be honest, I wasn't even there. He had mastered the art of leaving the field, showering, changing, and getting out of the stadium and into the player parking lot before most of the fans had left the building to get ahead of the traffic. So he would be across the McCombs Dam Bridge and the George Washington Bridge before most of the fans were still... Um, while most of the fans were still in their seats or walking slowly out through the thousands of people back to their cars. <laughs> I have to ask you about a, a few of the great players slash characters that he played with. One is, uh, it sounds like he was very close with Thurman Munson. Uh, what, what was their relationship like? Um, they were very close. You know, there were three guys that took the Yankees from those dark days of the late to mid to late sixties and became the stars when the Yankees started to become great again, Roy White, Bobby Mercer and Thurman Munson. Now Mercer in one of the great trades, like, like, and this was just before I understood baseball. This happened, you know, late 75 before the 76 season. I was too little to understand or think about it, but You know, they always talk about trading Joe DiMaggio for Ted Williams. And what would that have been like? And that's kind of always fun to think about. Or what would you have traded Mickey Mantle for Willie Mays? The Yankees and the Giants basically did that 
one step down when the Yankees traded Bobby Mercer for Bobby Bonds. Bobby Bonds was the next Willie Mays, and Bobby Mercer was the next <laughs> Mickey Mantle. Uh, Mantle and and um, and Mercer were both from, both from Oklahoma. Bobby Bonds and Willie Mays were very close. Um, in fact, Willie Mays is Barry Bonds's godfather, right? And so the Yankees and the Giants made this big trade, and then but uh, so Bobby. Mercer was never part of the coming back of the Yankees when they reascended to baseball glory. The only two guys left were Munson and Roy White. And these were the two guys that had gone through it all together. And Roy White's locker was right next to Thurman's. So they talked all the time, every day. They flew on the airplane. They sat next to each other, most often on the buses, on the airplanes. And Roy White ends up being the only player who plays on the Yankees from the, for the entire decade of the 1970s. The only other guy that could have been that would have been Munson if he hadn't died in that terrible plane crash in 1979. And what about the store, the, the straw that stirs the drink? Reggie Jackson, how, did, uh, how was Roy's relationship with Reggie? I think Roy's relationship with Reggie was fine. I think Roy was glad to have a great player like Reggie on the team. I mean, Reggie was great. And again, Roy stayed out of the controversy. Um, There was that famous game in 1977 when I think it was Jim Rice hits a blooper to right field. Reggie didn't necessarily catch it quickly enough or go after it hard enough in Billy Martin's eyes. And then Billy Martin pulls Reggie in the middle of the inning, sends Paul Blair out to replace Reggie. And then Reggie comes back to the dugout. And this was a big deal because it was on national TV and Martin and Reggie start getting into an argument in the club in the dugout in front of the people. Uh, I remember Elston Howard having to break it up. Um, And again, not every game was nationally televised. So this was like a humiliation to George Steinbrenner and the Yankees that the manager and their superstar player were fighting. And I asked Roy White, I said, well, was Reggie dogging it? Was he not, was he loafing? And Roy was like, I'm in left field. I watched the whole thing. He wasn't. Billy Martin was just looking for an opportunity to show up Reggie. He also tells the funny story. I think they were facing Wilbur Wood, uh, as I recall. They were playing the White Sox, and everybody on the Yankees was clobbering the guy. You know, everybody, let's just say, had two hits and a couple of RBIs and runs scored. And Reggie that day might have gone 0 for 4, 1 for 5 or something. And as they were talking after the game or whatever, Reggie said, boy, everybody had a good day, but he saved his best stuff for me. <laughs> Something like that. Um, and then the the other great player I wanted to ask you about from earlier in Roy's career is is the Mick. Uh, you know, as as you document in the book, Mickey was towards the end of his career at that point, and his body was really breaking down on him. But what impression did he make on Roy? I, I think you made the uh, setup on that very easy. Uh, Mickey Mantle could have dogged it. He was Mickey Mantle. He had secured his legend years before at the end of his career. The Yankees were not a competitive team anymore. And Roy White remembers sitting in the dugout watching Mickey Mantle get ready for a doubleheader late September, taping his legs up and having, you know, like going through all sorts of uh, procedures to get ready to go out on the field And he remembers Mickey Mantle running hard down the first baseline on a ground ball to try to beat it out or break up so it wouldn't be a double play. And he said, my goodness, if Mickey Mantle can play that hard 
at the end of his career while he's in such pain, I never have an excuse for not giving my best. Um, what was it like for Roy when, when his, his major league career came to an end? Well, it came to an end two different ways, right? So, so in, after the 1979 season, he doesn't re-sign with the Yankees. He didn't play a lot in 1979. The manager happened to be Billy Martin. Uh, he goes to play in the winter leagues, and he does very well, and he gets an offer to go play in Japan for the Yamayori Giants, the greatest team in Japan. And he got to play alongside the great Sadahara O. Oh. So, I mean, wow. Um, and so he gets a new life, a new career on a new continent in a new country in Japan. And he loved those experiences playing in Japan. And I think Japan loved him. I think Roy White is still huge in Japan. He was a great player on their greatest team. He batted fourth behind Sadahara O. Oh. So he protected O in the lineup. And um, he tells some great stories about playing in Japan. And then when his career in Japan ended, he came back. He had an opportunity possibly to play for a couple teams. I think the A's might have offered him a contract, maybe the Royals. He talked with some people and they said, listen, you don't want to go end your career in America, in the major leagues. You were a Yankee. You don't want to end your career on a on the Royals or the Oakland A's or something like that. It just it doesn't it doesn't work. That's not what you want to do. So he became a coach. And he remembers watching the games from the first base coaching box as the various guys are coming up thinking like, I want to bat. I wish I could bat. I think he talked to Billy Martin at the time saying like, Billy, I could do it. Lou Pinella was still playing. He's like, look, I'm the same age. I might be even younger than Lou Pinella. He can still play. I can still play. And then he remembers a game where Dave Steve was pitching against the Yankees and just, he was mesmerizingly good. And Roy White standing there going, I'm glad I don't have to hit against this guy. And I think that's when it finally sunk in, like his playing days were definitely over. Dave Steve is one of those pitchers from my youth that uh, was just a, a really good pitcher. And you just don't, you know, his time has kind of forgotten him. He's not talked about much, but he was Which a is really a shame, good pitcher. He was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and then Roy kind of coached and did some scouting on and off for the next 20 or so years, really. How did he like coaching in general? Once he kind of settled in and after the Dave Steve moment, <laughs> how did how did he like coaching? How did he like that? that oh, I think side he loved it. I, 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 in fact, I, uh, I think baseball is so much a part of him that he's, he still coaches, you know, like, like when I would sit there and talk to him and, and we would talk about players and, and, and things that are happening on the field. He, he's always, the, the, baseball is one of those sports where I think anybody who played even somewhat okay, even if that, even if that just means wiffle ball in the backyard, if you hit a home run, what they're doing on the field isn't all that different from what we think we can do, right? And like when you watch a basketball player fly through the air and slam dunk, like I say, I can't do that. Or you watch Tom Brady throw a pass 50 yards to the wide receiver who somehow catches it with one hand and tumbles and does acrobat. I, I can't do that. But you watch a baseball player catch a ground ball and throw a guy out. You say, yeah, I could probably do that. Or flick a hit to left field. You go, man, I might be able to do that. But when you see a guy who lives it his whole life start to talk about all of the nuances of how you break down a swing 
And, and you know, Paul, I, I really like Oswaldo Cabrera because I like the way his hands come through the zone and he, where he's starting his hands. And he tells a story, and I won't, I won't, actually, this isn't in the book, but he tells the story about seeing a Yankee years after his coaching has ended and just saying something like, I think you're using a bat that's a little too heavy. And the player was sort of like, yeah, I don't know. And then about a year later, the player went to a lighter bat and started doing unbelievably well and um, saw Roy a little later on and said, yeah, you know what? Your idea was right. I was. I was dragging the bat through the zone. So I think to answer the question, he enjoyed coaching. He enjoyed helping players become great. He enjoyed being someone who had a great knowledge for the game, who could help perpetuate the game and move it forward. But I do think that once you're a coach, you're sort of always a coach and you're always finding ways to help other people. Does he miss being formally involved in the game? Does he miss being an, being an actual coach on the, you know, on the sideline? I think Roy's going to be 80 this year in December when his birthday comes. So I don't, I don't know if he misses the day to day grind and and all that kind of stuff. Um, I never actually asked him like, do you wish you were coaching on the sidelines today? But I, I think he's pretty content and pretty happy where he is right now. Um, as you know, the book, you know, you, his, his resume is, is remarkable, right? I mean, he's, he's the only player, as you mentioned, to play for the Yankees for the entire 1970s. He was obviously on those, those two world championship teams. He made a couple all-star teams due to his, his longevity and his durability. I mean, he's among the the top 10 or 15 in, in Yankees lists of numerous statistical categories, um, he was a coach for the team for many years. And yet, as we talk about, and as, as you noted, he has tremendous class. I mean, he always, you know, was a, a wonderful representative for the Yankee team, the Yankee brand. Uh, and yet when people talk about the great teams of the seventies, as I said to you before, it's usually, you know, Reggie Thurman, Goose, Catfish, Nettles, um, even guys like Mickey Rivers, Chambliss, Willie Randolph often come up before, before Roy does. And then of course there, there's, there's no tribute to him in Monument Park, um, which is really, you know, after reading your book is just unfathomable. Um, why do you think that is? Why hasn't he gotten the recognition that he's deserved? You know, I was talking with someone who has somewhat of an understanding of how a lot of this stuff works. You know, Roy White's never thrown out the first ball at a Yankee game. How can that possibly be? But it's my understanding that a lot of the times guys who get the opportunity to throw out the first ball are the ones who go asking for the opportunity to throw out the first ball. And that's not Roy White. Roy White's never going to go asking the Yankees for a favor. Like, oh, give me my moment in the sun. In fact, uh, to, to really answer that question... There's a chapter in the back. It's called What Made Roy White Successful? It's the, it's the second appendix of the book. I originally wrote that as What Made Me Successful by Roy White. I wanted something at the end to sort of sum up the entire book and to take all of the lessons that I wrote about and all of the stories that I wrote about and sort of homogenize it. I'm, as I told you, I was a principal, I was an educator for 32 years. I still am because I teach college, but um, I wanted something for people to be able to grab onto and say, this is how I could become successful. And Roy White read it. He liked it. 
He goes, yeah, it's good. And then we talked a day or two later and he goes, that can't be in the book. I don't talk like that. I don't talk about myself. I, I, I don't, I'm not somebody who's a self promoter. So I was like, oh, darn, because I really wanted that in the book. So I said, well, what if I just change it from what made me successful to what made Roy White successful by Semendinger? He goes, yeah, you could do that. You could talk about me, but I, I, I don't talk about myself like that. I took the liberty of writing it because I thought it was a good way to sum it up. And then he's, that was really the only thing that he really edited. He's like, that can't be written. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have never written something like that. I've never said anything like that. So I think that's part of the problem. I think the other part of the problem is I think the Yankees sometimes are just, um, I don't know, is the word tone deaf or, or um, clueless? I, I don't want to overstate the fact, but here's one of your great players of all time. He was a Yankee for 15 years, as you mentioned, you know, top 10, 15 or 20 in almost every single category. The 11th greatest Yankee of all time in war. Think about that. Like the 11th greatest Yankee of all time. How can the 11th greatest guy not be in Monument Park? And they have a lot more. There are a lot more than 11 numbers retired. And, and you don't you don't necessarily have to retire his number. You can just have a can. plaque. Hey, I, yes, I'll go on another too. rant on that in a, in a moment. But I don't think Roy White Day at Yankee Stadium would carry as much cachet, if you will, with the modern fan as Paul O'Neill Day. They remember Paul O'Neill more. Fewer people remember Roy White. And so Paul O'Neill gets a day. Paul O'Neill gets a number retired. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it, whatever. People can feel however they want on that. But my only my only objection is, my goodness, if you're going to honor Paul O'Neill, you got to honor Roy White. And, and Roy White's number is retired. It's retired, but it's in the name of Joe Torrey. So... Roy White was a better player, a better Yankee, a more accomplished Yankee than Paul O'Neill. If you're going to retire Paul O'Neill's number, it's doing a disservice and an injustice to a player like Roy White. And the Yankees have retired number eight twice. They did it in the same ceremony, but they retired it for Bill Dickey and Yogi Berra. They both deserve it. That's great. But if you can do that for that number, you could also do it for then for, for number six. It's already retired. Say, you know what? It's also retired for Roy White. He was also I mean, great. For, for that matter, number 42 is retired twice, right? I mean, you, a great yeah. point. Great point. Yeah. Exactly. Um, does it bother him that the organization hasn't shown? I know he's not the type of guy to, who's going to, he's not going to bitch about it. That's just not who Roy White is. But do you think it bothers him that the organization hasn't shown him more gratitude and respect? I'll say this. He has always said it doesn't bother me. He's always said I'm not losing sleep over it. Um, but again, if I think we just look at it as a as a human being, how would you feel? How would I feel? I'd feel slighted. And um, it's time. It's due. Uh, in the book, you know that I interviewed a lot of other people who were uh, part of Roy White's life. And there are numerous people who all say this is a grave injustice that needs to be remedied. And it's time. I mean, again, he's again, I believe he's going to be 80 in December. Um, he's in great health. He looks great. But like, let's do this while he is physically able enough, young enough still to be able to enjoy it and, and able to appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought to say on a human level, like, I mean, would you rather have a plaque in Monument Park or not have a plaque in Monument Park, right? I mean, every, of course you'd rather have the plaque, right? Of course you'd rather have a, a you know, be recognized in that way. Um, 
All right, I'll get w- w- one last thing I, w- I have to ask you about because it's just so crazy. Um, is is the Fritz Peterson Mike Hekic story, um, which of course I'd heard about before. Uh, for those that don't know, Fritz, Fritz Peterson and Mike Hekic, uh, I forget what the year is, sometime mid 70s, I guess, switched families. They traded families, they took the other one's wife and kids and, and dog, a and, house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's just it's one of the just craziest stories in sports history. It has to be I, I, what I, I know you, you must have talked about that with Roy to some extent because it was in the book. I mean, what did the what did their teammates think of that? What how did that resonate in the locker room? I, I think I think everybody was in shock. He tells the story that he was at, I think, Fritz Peterson's house with his wife, like a month beforehand, they had a cookout in Oakland, New Jersey and, and everything, everything seemed fine. And then the next thing, you know, like everything's changed. Is there and, like a formal announcement is like, did, did Mike and, and, and Fritz come to the locker room and Hey guys, we're switching families. Like we traded everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, again, Roy White keeps a lot to himself when it comes to things that might be a little bit controversial. He was just shocked that it looked as though these were two families that everybody got along great. And he goes, I know they were, we knew they were close. We didn't know they were like willing to be that close or whatever and trade families. Um, and I always get them mixed up in my mind, but one of those uh, relationships worked might be Fritz Peterson that, that actually worked. Um, and the other one didn't, but both of those pitchers were traded soon after the Yankees did not keep them around. And um Eventually, they, I don't think at the same time, but they both ended up, I believe, pitching for the uh, Cleveland Indians uh, after being Yankees. And I believe Fritz Peterson was in the trade that brought the Yankees Chris Chambliss. I believe he that was. That sounds right. That sounds right. I yeah. could be wrong, but I think so. Unbelievable. I, I mean, what a story. Um, all right, well. I, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there, Paul. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the the podcast. As as I told you before we came on, I just I absolutely love the book, um, and it, it was I think uh, it's 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 I'm really glad. As I said, I'm I'm really glad you and Roy wrote it because, um, like I said, we've I've heard so much about Thurman, I've heard so much about Reggie, and and deservedly so. Um, but here's a great ball player who from that era who a lot of people certainly especially people who you know came of age after he played don't know a great deal about and uh after reading your book I, i've come over with the fact that well they 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 should everybody should every yankee fan every baseball fan should know roy white's story uh, as a baseball player but also he sounds like a wonderful man and and that makes me glad as well that you wrote the book and got his story out there so um, I definitely encourage everybody to read it and, and to learn more about Roy and and of course not just Roy but some of the characters that you know we talked about Billy George Reggie Thurman there are stories about all of them in there and 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 the Bronx Zoo years. Um, so once again, Paul's book is called Roy White from Compton to the Bronx, and Paul, I wish you the best of luck with the book. Now, Paul, I can't thank you enough. I loved talking with you last time. I loved it again this time. And uh, hey, maybe in a year or so, I'll have another one out there and we could do this again. Yes, you'll be my first third time guest. I, oh, I would love that. That would be awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Paul.